It's been said that evil always overplays its hand. Evil always overplays its hand because it does not consider the end. And the fact that it has an end. The Bible teaches us that evil is real. That its ultimate origins are a mystery. But that its purposes are not. Evil purposes to rip God from his throne. And destroy God's good creation. But when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, he overplayed his hand. Adam and Eve fell and plunged the whole created order in sin and misery. But God's Son would rise, overcoming sin, evil, wickedness, and death. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, pronouncing to us God's verdict on evil. Its end is coming. And right now, God's people wait in faith, in hope, and love for that end to arrive. Psalm 52, a psalm of David, gives us a preview of this perspective on the end of evil. It shows us a time in David's life when he was confronted by wicked and evil men, and when he had to wait for the love of the Lord to overcome the evil that he was facing. And it's my hope that as we study this psalm together this morning, we will learn from David, learn from God's word, how to wait in faith for the love of God to finally disclose to the world that evil has overplayed its hand. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 52. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Psalm 52 on page 474. 474. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background on this psalm, on Psalm 52. Psalm 52, as we thought about just a little bit earlier in the service, it has a specific historical context. You look right there at the description of the psalm, the kind of the, the words that are the heading for the psalm. You'll see these words. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. We read about that occasion earlier in the service in 1 Samuel 22. At that point in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, as William mentioned, it's, it's become clear that the kingdom is going to be torn from Saul. He's kind of the reigning king at that point in time and given to David. Saul is, is incensed by this and by many other things. Uh, so he chases after David, seeking to kill him, even killing those who help him along the way. David had received help from the house of Ahimelech. The priests, and so, so Saul orders uh, the priests to be killed at Nob. None of Saul's servants, none of the members of kind of his guard there, step forward to execute his orders. They seem to kind of know that it's wrong. So instead, an enemy of God's people, an Edomite named Doeg, steps forward to execute Saul's orders. And so he executed God's priests. From what we find in this psalm, Psalm 52, it seems as though Doeg has been kind of proudly running his mouth about what he has done and that this news has reached David. Still, we know from 1 Samuel chapter 16, that was a chapter that David was anointed in that book, we know that David is God's king. You see, Saul, he was Israel's king, but David is God's king. And so David believes and trusts that God will right all wrongs in the end. And that it's only appropriate for God to bring about that end. So that's why David doesn't kill Saul in the book of 1 Samuel, even though he has multiple opportunities to do so. 
David waits for God to bring about the end, to right all wrongs. And that's what he expresses in this psalm. David expresses his hope that the steadfast love of the Lord will outlast wickedness. And so he puts his hope in God. So with this background in mind, let's just read all of Psalm 52. Let me read it for us. Psalm 52. To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I... I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. You'll notice right there from the ascription and from the the musical term that we kind of saw throughout Selah, uh, throughout this psalm, that this was a song that was meant to be used in Israel's worship. Uh, Given that this was meant to be used uh, and to be sung as part of Israel's worship, we can already see that it uh, it was meant for wider application. Yes, it was personal to David. It took place in his life. But it was instructive and useful for the people of God as a whole. And so they sang it. Doeg, he, he instigated this occasion for writing this psalm, but it can be applied to other evil men down through the ages. In the opening Verse, this psalm gives us its, its thesis. Why boast of evil when God's love will outlast all evil? Verses 2 through 4 then tell us of the, of the evil boast. Verse 5 reminds us that God's love is displayed through His justice against wickedness. Verses 6 through 9 then tell us how the righteous trust in God while they wait upon Him. So the message of, of Psalm 52 is clear. The love of God outlasts, overpowers, and overcomes evil. So take refuge in Him. So if you, if you want a kind of a summary of Psalm 52 in a single sentence, a message of this psalm in a single sentence, that's it. The love of God outlasts, overpowers, and overcomes evil. So take refuge in Him. We're going to study Psalm 52 under four headings. First, the thesis of Psalm 52. Second, the tongues of the wicked. Third, the terror of God. And fourth, the trust of the righteous. So let's consider the the first point. The first point. The thesis of Psalm 52. The thesis of Psalm 52. It's right there in verse 1. So just let me read verse 1 for us again. This is the thesis of Psalm 52. 
Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. You see, Doeg the Edomite, he happily found himself employed in the service of King Saul. At King Saul's request, he slaughtered the priests of God. Saul, at that point in the story of 1 Samuel, you remember, he was already an enemy of God. For he had refused to obey the voice of God and carry out God's commands. And Doeg the Edomite, through his massacre of God's servants, he became an enemy of God too. Apparently, he boasted of his dastardly deeds. He mused that he was mighty. He was, but was he mighty? Well, think about his feet that we read about earlier. He killed, Doeg killed not only 85 priests, but according to 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, he also killed everyone and virtually everything in the town of Nob. Doeg killed men, women, children, infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. It was no small display of evil. It was defiance in the face of the divine. It was a powerful display of evil. But for David, Doeg's evil was not mightier than God's love. When compared to the steadfast love of God, those who boast and puff themselves up are not as strong as one might think. To be sure, they really do commit evil, horrific evil. We can't minimize the fact that evil occurs in this world. We can't minimize its destructive force and power, but we cannot maximize it either. We cannot maximize it, especially when the steadfast love of God endures all the day, or as uh, some translations render it, the steadfast love of God endures continually. You see, evil has an end, but God's love does not. There will be a last act for evil, but there is no last act for love. There is no last act for love because the God of love endures forever, or to use David's expression, all the day. This is why David will say in verse 8, toward the end of the psalm, say, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. So, So hear the thesis of this psalm clearly. Evil has an end, but love does not. Evil has an end, but love shall never end. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8? It is. He says, love never ends. See, murder has an end. Abortion has an end. Theft has an end. Greed has an end. Racism has an end. Human trafficking and enslavement have an end. Deceit and false imprisonment have an end. Persecution has an end. War will come to an end. Evil will end, but love will not. No matter how much evil boasts of its might... And its strength, it cannot stop the loving plan of God to once and for all bring it to an end. In the end, there is love and therefore ever will be love because God is love. This psalm, it warns us then to be wary of our own evil. It it warns us to be on guard against boasting of our own might. It warns us against puffing ourselves up, displaying our accomplishments as though the world ought to give attention to us and worship us. This psalm warns us. And this psalm welcomes us. 
into the loving arms of God. As we wait for the day in which we will see love finally outlast and overpower evil once and for all, we ought to let the thesis of this psalm impact how we think about life in this world. The the darkness may be thick, but it will not outlast, overcome, or overpower the love of God. Whatever challenge, difficulty, or evil is before you, brother or sister, know this. The steadfast love of God endures forever. Believe what you read here. Our God has spoken to us a true word. And this truth is what gives us strength to persevere in the face of evil and evil's boasts. They will become silent one day. Well, having considered the thesis of this psalm, Psalm 52, that it has an end, evil has an end, but love shall never end. Let's turn and consider our second point, the tongues of the wicked. Here David tells us about the tongues of the wicked. Look at verses 2 through 4 here. David writes, Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good. And lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour. O deceitful tongue. You know, in in verse 1, the the tongues of the wicked have already been addressed. The the tongues of the wicked boast of evil. And here, this this theme is really enlarged. Uh, Three different times, in three different ways, David tells us what the tongues of the wicked plan and pant after. Verse 2 shows us that the tongues of the wicked plot destruction. Notice the reference to a sharp razor in the middle of verse 2. The wicked plan to cut and wound and deceive with their tongues. They plan to lie, as we see there at the end of verse 3. They plan to deceive and devour, verse 4. And this is what Doeg did in 1 Samuel 22. Uh, He spoke in such a way that preyed upon Saul's evil intentions. He played Saul for a fool, really. He spoke with a a razor-sharp tongue and so perverted the truth of God in order that destruction could be brought upon the priests and the whole city of Nob. Planning such evil stems and grows out of a heart that pants after wickedness. David shows us what the wicked love in these verses. Did you notice that? He shows us their affections. Verse 3, the wicked love evil more than good. The wicked love lying lips more than truthful tongues. The wicked love words that devour and deceive more than words that defend and declare the truth. Verse 4, the wicked tongue is connected to the wicked heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Let's be honest with ourselves as church-going people here on a Sunday morning. We like to think that the problem's out there. We don't like to think uh, that the problem is actually in here for each and every one of us. If we're honest with ourselves, then we'll admit too many times this past week that we have used our tongues in destructive ways. You know, uh, earlier in this week, I was reading this psalm uh, with my family, reading with the kids, and I you know, asked my kids, have you used your tongue in a, in a deceitful, disastrous, and dangerous way? And they all said yes. 
And then my son says to me, what about you, Dad? He nailed it, right? Yes, I have, son. I have. We all have. Sadly, I'm guessing many of us have used our tongues like razors this past week. We've used them to cut and to wound, whether we've spoken harshly to our kids, our spouse, or our co-workers, or our parents, our siblings, or our friends. Sadly, we've used our tongues to cut down and destroy. Do we feel the weight and conviction that we ought to feel about how we've used our tongues? Consider what some of God's Word says about our tongues. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 4, we read, a gentle, tr- a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Have you ever broken someone's spirit by your tongue? Have you ever said something that just absolutely crushed someone? Crushed a loved one? In the book of James, you probably know, has some powerful things to say about the tongue. Among them, James chapter 3 verse 8 tells us that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. How often have we seen our tongues produce poison and kill peace in our relationships? As the people of God, it's appropriate for us to confess that we have used our tongues wickedly. And that we are in need of God's grace. We, we need His help to speak as He speaks. We need His help to speak words that don't devour, but that defend and that restore. We need His help to guard our lips from words of ruin and asking Him to give us words of redemption. You know, the next time you're in the middle of an argument, because there will be a next time, uh, remember Ephesians chapter 3, verse 29. There Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk Come out of your mouths. Think of that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So the next time you're in the middle of an argument, pray and ask God for help. Ask Him, what can I say? What can I say that will help me build up and give grace for this moment in time. Children, youth, young adults, consider talking with your parents this afternoon about how you can use your tongue in ways that are gracious and reflective of how God speaks. Ask your parents how they need to grow in that too. It'd be a great conversation to have. Let's also be sure to take God's perspective here on deceit. Here we're given God's perspective on deceit, aren't we? Here, as in other places in God's Word, we're told that deceit and deception are depicted as destructive. Deception, according to David, is dangerous and deadly. And like David, we ought to be outraged by deceit and deception. Do you just kind of hear David's outrage? He's almost verbally pointing the finger. You say this. You do that. David's outraged by this deceit. We ought to be outraged by deceit and deception. We ought to be grieved by it. We ought to be ashamed whenever we find it in our own hearts and mouths. We must ask ourselves, am I more concerned about speaking the truth or concealing the truth? Consider also the balance that's spoken of throughout these verses. Did you notice this? Take a look at verse 3 particularly. You love evil more than good. 
and lying more than speaking what is right. You know, it's not that the wicked never speak the truth. They sometimes do. Rather, it's that they love deceit, falsehood, and evil more than they love righteousness, goodness, and truth. And here is the truth. The human heart, apart from God working in it, is out of balance. The human heart, the heart of the natural man, the heart of the unbelieving man, is out of balance. It is weighted more toward a love for evil than it is toward a love of good. That is not to say that man can do no good. We all know many wonderful, kind, gentle, unbelieving persons. To say that the hearts of unbelievers are weighted more toward love of evil than love of good is not to say they can do no good. But it is to say that unless God graciously and sovereignly rebalances the heart of man to a greater and surpassing love for him and his truth, they will be torn from this earth to meet the eternal terror of God. And that's what we turn now to consider in our next point, the terror of God. Read Psalm 52, verse 5 there. Verse 5, we see the terror of God. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Just as the first verse of this psalm implied, the mighty man who boasts of evil will be humbled by God. He will not merely be brought down, he will be broken down. He will not merely be broken down temporarily like a, you know, a car gets broken down on the side of the road with some effort you can get it going again. No, he will be broken down, notice that word, forever. It will be an everlasting judgment. The mighty man who boasts of evil will not merely be slowed, he will be stopped once and for all. When God breaks him down, he will do so forever. Now you'll notice that the remaining clauses of kind of verse 5, they tell us again and again the same thing really, from just from different angles. The phrase, he will snatch you, shows us that God's judgment of the wicked will come in a swift and unexpected manner. There's no preparing for this judgment. The idea that God will tear the wicked man from his tent shows us that it's going to be a violent judgment. It will be against his will. God will once and for all pull the man up from the land of the living like crops are uprooted from the soil. If you've ever uh, torn a substantive kind of plant out of the ground, you know the sound that the roots make when they're being detached from the soil. They're being ripped away. This will happen to the wicked when in love God comes to judge. This is what will happen. Being pulled from the land of the living gives us a sense that sometimes God's judgments may come in the form of death. But this idea of being pulled from the land of the living, at least in the Old Testament, also carries with it the idea of punishment in the life to come. Sometimes God punishes the wicked here on earth, but He always punishes the unrepentant wicked when He pulls them from this earth to come before His throne. You know, earlier I suggested that God's judgment is rooted in love. 
Maybe that idea that God's judgment of evil being rooted in love sounds strange to you. But it's true. God is good. And so He cannot let sin, evil, and wickedness go unpunished. It would be unjust and unloving if He allowed evil and wickedness to go unpunished. God's wrath is an expression of His love. It is an expression of His love for holiness, righteousness, goodness, and truth. God's terrible and terrifying wrath is even an expression of His love for His people. See, the truth of Psalm 52 and the truth of the Bible is that we all deserve to face God's wrath for our sin. What happens in verse 5 deserves to come upon us all. We all deserve to be broken down by God forever. We all deserve to be snatched and torn and uprooted from the land of the living to face God's eternal wrath. We deserve this terror because like Doeg and like the first man and the first woman, like Adam and Eve, we have all proclaimed our own strength. We have all trusted in ourselves and lived our own way rather than God's way. This rebellion against God is what the Bible calls sin. And our sin is an offense and an affront to God's goodness and love. In our sin, we express our love of ourselves over our love for God. And we foolishly proclaim, like we're mighty men, that we know better than God. Our way is better than God's way. That we'll do a better job ruling our lives than He would. See, because we sin against the eternal God, we deserve to face His just wrath for all eternity in hell. A place of self-conscious torment. All sin will come under His judgment. And the question is, will we personally face His wrath? Or will we come to Him in repentance and faith, believing that His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore God's terrible wrath for us. You see, that is the good news of the Bible. The good news of the Bible is that although all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, He planned a rescue from His wrath through His Son. In the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God became man. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, lived the perfect life of obedience to God the Father. He lived the life that we have not lived. In love, He gave up His life as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. He stood in the place and took the punishment for the sins of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. He raised His Son from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to escape the wrath of God pictured and promised here in verse 5 of 52. The only way to escape this wrath is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus was ripped from the land of the living in His death for you and being raised as a victor over it. 
The only way to escape this wrath is to believe that Jesus bore God's wrath for you. And so you hide yourself in Him and take refuge in Him. So that on the last day when you are called before God's throne, you plead not the merits of your own life, but what Jesus has done for you in bearing God's wrath against your sin. You see, all sin will be punished because God is just, because He's loving. Will you bear that punishment or you believe that Jesus has borne it for you? Friend, this is the good news. that God gave His Son so that you might be spared from His wrath. So turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ and hide yourself in Him. And if you want to know more and think more about what this good news means for you in your life, talk to the Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about this good news. There's no greater news in the world than this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, such a terrible and terrifying reality is portrayed in verse 5. Ought to lead us to preach this good news. To proclaim it to our friends and our family members, to our co-workers and our neighbors. So that they're not snatched from the land of the living and brought before the judgment seat of God. Apart from Jesus Christ. Let's plead with them to escape God's wrath against their sin. Let's plead with them to embrace Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Let's proclaim to them that Jesus is able to bear God's wrath against their sin. So that no judgment will face no condemnation from, for their sins. Let's plead and persuade them to come to Him in faith. Such a terrible and terrifying reality as portrayed here in verse 5 ought to also encourage us to continue to put our trust in God, to continue to hide ourselves in Jesus Christ. This trust is what David expresses in his disposition toward God. And, and by example, it's what he urges us all to do, to trust in God. So let's turn now and consider our, our next point, the trust of the righteous. And as we do, uh, read verses 6 to 9 now. David writes, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trusted in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever. Because you have done it, I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. So verses 6 and 7 there, you'll notice, they express the reaction of the righteous to the judgment of the wicked. While verses 8 and 9 express the disposition of the righteous while they wait for God's loving judgment. Let us be certain of this. The righteous will be witnesses to the judgment of God upon the wicked. Did you notice that in these verses? The righteous will be witnesses to the judgment of God upon the wicked. If not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. We see that here in verse 6. The righteous shall see and fear and laugh. You know, other Old Testament passages 
teach to the righteous will witness God's judgment upon the wicked. So listen to how the book of Isaiah concludes. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, the last verse of the book. And they, Isaiah's speaking about the righteous here. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. The righteous will witness God's judgment. The reality of God's judgment of the wicked ought to lead us to fear Him. We fear Him not, not in the sense that we're afraid of Him. It's not a sense of dread, but of awe and wonder that God has been so gracious to spare us of this judgment that our sins deserve by placing it upon His Son. The judgment that we shall witness on the last day will be the judgment that our sins deserve and then the judgment that Jesus Christ took for us. We saw this certainty in verse 5 when David said, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you and tear you from the land. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The certainty and the severity of this judgment may lead us to ask, then how can we laugh? How can we laugh? at the judgment of the wicked. Now before we answer that question, um, <clears throat> let's observe that, that God will laugh at the wicked in the end. Uh, in Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 4, we read, He who sits in the heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. That was the Lord's response to the nations who plotted against Him and against His anointed King. Nations plotted against the Lord's anointed, who we know is ultimately Jesus Christ. God used to bring about the salvation of the nations. The Lord laughs at the foolish plans of the wicked. He laughs at them because they have no power or authority that is outside of His sovereign will. They have no power or authority that can thwart His sovereign purposes. Their foolish plans are actually what He uses to reveal what He planned and purposed in His wisdom from before the ages began. Then in Psalm 37, verse 13, we read, But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for He sees that His day is coming. So this verse in Psalm 30, 37 comes on the heels of the wicked, plotting schemes against the righteous. Again, here we have the Lord's response to the schemes of the wicked. They think that they're in control. They think that they're thwarting the purposes of God. They think that they're mighty. That they're changing the course of history when in fact the Lord sees the day of judgment is coming. The Lord knows the end from before the beginning. The wicked do not scare Him. And it is funny that they think that they're so powerful when in fact they are so weak. Laughter at the judgment of the wicked is not always improper. The righteous, good, loving, and holy God laughs at the wicked. We see that in Psalm 2, Psalm 37, one we didn't read. There's one in Psalm 59, as well as other Old Testament passage. The Lord laughs at the wicked for precisely the same reasons that the righteous laugh at the wicked here in Psalm 52. Here the righteous laugh at the wicked because they refuse to trust in God. It's not that the wicked could not take refuge in God. Rather, it's that the wicked would not make God his refuge. 
He foolishly took refuge in other things. He made riches his stronghold. He thought that all of his wealth would protect him from disaster. He even sought refuge in his own destruction. In other words, he thought that his crushing his enemies would make him safe. But it didn't. You know, Doeg, he killed everybody at Nob. He thought, okay, those enemies are gone. And that made him safe. But it didn't. He had an enemy in heaven whose arm could reach to earth. He might be mighty on earth, but the mighty one of Israel is mighty in heaven and on earth. What verse 7 really reveals is the utter foolishness of failing to trust in God. And the laughter of the righteous here, the laughter described here in verse 6, is not joy-filled. You know, the scriptures teach us that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. This is not a joy-filled laughter. It is a laughter that expresses amazement at the wonder and at the foolishness of the wicked. It's, it's an incredulous laughter. You can't be serious. You're going to oppose God. But let us not distance ourselves from the folly of the wicked too much, for sometimes we too are tempted to trust in our wealth and in our might. Many of us here today have a considerable amount of wealth. You know, we... Uh, some of us, we want for nothing. But too often, we're wanting something more. Because of our wealth, we can practically buy our comfort. And in our comfort, we can forget that we need God more than we need our wealth. Wealth can test our trust. Trusting in our might is really... Uh, it's a problem for us all, but it's particularly a problem for those of us in our youth. We take our uh, strength for granted, but one day it will be gone. Any older saint will tell you that it can be physically painful to age. It is hard. Whatever strength we have, we have from God. And we ought to use it for Him and independence upon Him and thank Him. For it. All of us are tempted to trust in our might and wealth. We do this because we sometimes compartmentalize our walk with the Lord. Uh, perhaps we give Jesus an hour in the morning and a couple hours on Sunday. But the reality is, is that when He created the world and gave order to the day and the night, He re revealed Himself to be the Lord of time. He owns it all. We need Him to be our ruler. And Lord, not just for an hour of our day, closing our Bibles and then going off to work or whatever else we have to do, forgetting Him. We need Him for the whole day. Throughout the day, are we speaking to our God in prayer, expressing our dependence upon Him? Are we calling out to Him, begging Him for wisdom? Are we trusting in the might of our minds? There's a reason that Annie Hawks wrote the hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. It is because the righteous know that the steadfast love of God will overcome, overpower, and outlast all evil that David learns from the end of the wicked. And instead, of, in, instead he, he purposes to continue to trusting in God instead of trusting in his might. David was a young man at this point in time. He could have trusted in his strength. But he gives himself to trusting in God. The wicked, Doeg included, have not made God their refuge. But David will, and we should too. 
Those who take refuge in God in His house and in His love will flourish like a green olive tree. How do the faithful flourish? How do we flourish today? By trusting and abiding in Jesus Christ. Moreover, Jesus, he, He's really the fulfillment of God's house. He's all that the tabernacle and that the temple, which is what God's house refers to, Jesus is all that the tabernacle and the temple looked forward to as He brought their purposes to their end and intended goal. How do we, like David, persevere with patience until the love of God fully and finally overcomes all wickedness, evil, and sin? We do so by trusting in the unfailing love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. We do so by, as David says here, giving thanks to God. He has done it. The outcome is so certain. Did you notice it's a thing, it's spoken of as a thing already having been accomplished. That's why David can say in the same verse, because you've done it and I will wait for your name. God is good. He will not let wickedness have the last word. The wicked have overplayed their hand, they overstate their case, and they overescalate their perceived victory. The end is not in doubt. It never has been. And we've known that from the beginning of this psalm when David said, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. Now, did you notice the three things that David mentions in these verses? These things, I think, help us, will help us know the path of perseverance that is before us. Those three things were trusting in God, giving thanks, and waiting. Now, of course you're aware these are nothing like secrets to the Christian life. There's no such thing as secrets to the Christian life. These are three basic instructions that are all over the Bible. But they're so important, essential, really, to our perseverance in times of ease and evil. Both have challenges. Think about each of them. When we trust in the steadfast love of God in the face of evil, we are reminded that though our hearts and our emotions and circumstances may change, He does not. His love is steadfast. It remains constant and enduring. His love never fails because He can never fail. I so love Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because He is the same, because His steadfast love is persistent, I can persevere knowing that He loves me. What about giving thanks mentioned there in verse 9? How does this help us to persevere in the midst of evil? Do you know what we're saying when we give thanks? We're saying to our Father, you have given me better than I deserve. I deserve hell. And you have given me heaven through Christ. He gives us what He needs. He gives us Himself. He has made an end of all of our sin in Christ. We have everything we need. And yet, over and over and over again, He's pleased to give us more. He even says, you know, come to me and ask me for more. He has given us all that we need. In Christ, we have everything that we need. And He gives us more. Another meal. Another smile, another word of encouragement, another day, another week with His people to grow in love for Him and His generosity toward us. You know, if you don't come to church happy, I fear that uh, you don't know what you've gotten you've got in Jesus Christ. You have heaven. You have God Himself giving Himself to you 
Give thanks to God for Christ and for all of his many blessings. In verse 9, David says that he will wait. David is waiting for God to bring about his purposes of judgment. How does waiting help us persevere? How's waiting even spiritual? <laughs> Who likes waiting? And it's, it's, it's almost as if David is writing about waiting positively. Uh, you know, I'll be the first to admit, I don't like waiting. Um, and yet waiting is so good for my soul. Waiting is painful. It's a painful but good reminder for me that I am not God. That's a good thing. I am not in control. He is. I do not have the best plan. He does. I do not have the right timing. He does. Waiting teaches us God's goodness. And it causes us to consider that God's purposes for us are not tied to our satisfaction. But even more than that, God wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be happy in Jesus. And sometimes He does that by making us wait. You know, even Jesus had to wait. If you read through John's Gospel, one of the things that Jesus says is, My hour has not yet come. So many people in the Gospels were trying to rush Him, to push Him to reveal Himself as the Messiah. But He had to wait patiently to teach them what the Messiah was really like. Jesus had to wait for the appointed time of His death and resurrection. Jesus had to wait to fulfill all righteousness and wait so that we might have, so we might learn the righteousness of our Savior and be made more like Him. As we conclude, I want us to recognize that God has provided us with means to trust Him, to give thanks to Him and to wait upon Him. I think we see one of the means there at the end of verse 9. Verse 9. David refers there to the presence of the godly. And this, you know, this either refers to kind of a formal gathering with God's people in worship, like in the tabernacle, or it refers to receiving and drawing encouragement from godly men along the way. Remember, at the time this song was written, David was on the run in the wilderness. He was on the run from Saul. He was fleeing for his life in the wilderness. And yet he realized that if he was to survive, if he was to continue to trust, to give thanks, and to wait upon the Lord to act, then he had to be in the presence of godly, presence of those who were doing the same thing. David had a band of godly men running with him. God never intended for his people to live alone in this world. He has always intended for his people to wait for the final victory over evil together. What a mercy and kindness of God that He has given us to each other. Which means we ought to be in each other's presence. It's so important to our patient waiting. God has even, us, even commanded us to gather together. So in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 we read, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day that the writer of the Hebrews was referring to is the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And he's saying, let us not stop meeting together until that day comes. Let us keep gathering. 
God has given us to each other to help and encourage each other to remember that the steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day. We need help. We need to help and encourage each other to remember that God's love endured all day yesterday. That His love will endure all day today. That His love will endure all the days that He gives us. And that the steadfast love of the Lord will endure, will endure until the very last day. When all evil, and wickedness, and sin is brought to an end. Remember that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray together.